Good evening. Um, yeah, it's, this is, you know, we just do this once a month on uh, on the Spirit Rock Zoom. Uh, I'm, I do Zoom classes Tuesday mornings and Friday evenings uh, through my own uh, Zoom account, which you can find on my website, kevingriffin.net. Google Kevin Griffin, you find me easily. Um, and the, the Sunday day long is something we've been doing for like a dozen years, really. And it's really meant to be uh, a support for people in recovery at this time of year. Uh, this is uh, one of those times when, uh, you know, it's there's a lot of relapse, frankly, that happens over the holidays. And, and so the idea is uh, to keep you close. And uh, that's why it's called Keep Coming Back. And, um, you know, and also a time to kind of reflect on where you are, have been and where you are going, uh, you know, your commitment to your recovery and your practice. So tonight we will, we will meditate for about 30 minutes. I'll give some guidance for that. Um, and then uh, we'll probably have a short break and then uh, I'm going to give a talk. Um, you know, this is just, uh, I'm, I'm really feeling the winteriness of, of the, these days. This day somehow seemed like, hmm, <laughs> sun never came out, chilly, and uh, the sun is very low in the sky. I hope it comes back someday. Um, yeah, and I certainly think this can be that that as well, that the kind of winter energy can uh, can be difficult uh, for, for people who, who, need, who need light. <laughs> um, I'm one of those people. So, um, so yeah, well, let's start with our sitting and, um, you know, I'll guide for a while and then I'll, I'll be quiet for a while too. But just to get started, you know, settling into a posture that supports your mindfulness, that supports your awareness. You can close your eyes or just lower your gaze. It's a time we can not be looking at the screen. You won't see much. You'll see me sitting here with my eyes closed. So, Rather, we want to really turn our attention inward. And that starts with feeling your body, just feeling your body as it is, sitting wherever you are, however you are sitting. You know, and oftentimes when we just shift our attention in this, this way, we naturally change our posture, we might realize, oh, not really that comfortable. Maybe I need to adjust a little bit. 
Just feeling the body breathing. And seeing if you can release or soften any tension or tightness in the body. Relaxing the jaw, the eyes. Releasing the shoulders. Feeling the arms and hands. Softening the belly. So there's room for the breath to move deeply into the body. Just feeling the chest moving, the belly. Letting the attention move down the legs to the feet. And then broadening the awareness to feel the whole body feeling the whole body as a single object, just sitting. The mindfulness practice It points us to kind of breaking down our experience into its component parts. Separating sensations from feelings and feelings from thoughts. what we often experience as a kind of holistic experience we see in its multiplicity. We see how different elements of experience come together to create an illusion, illusion of self, to create beliefs and thoughts, 
create our reality. So when we see the component parts, we're less identified, we're less caught in beliefs. We start to question assumptions. Oh, let your attention start to gather around the breath. Let the breath become your focal point. Either the breath at the nostrils or, or as movement in the belly. We're always tuning into sensation, not the breath as something theoretical but really having an intimate experience either of the air touching the nostrils in and out or the movement of the belly and the diaphragm rising and falling. The breath is essentially a neutral experience, not particularly pleasant or unpleasant. So it's something we can pay attention to without having a big story about it. It's just there, just something to be with. At the same time, it's very neutrality very bland nature can leave us looking for something more, something more entertaining or, or compelling. But if we observe this process, we see into the nature of mind that's grasping that keeps grasping, always looking for pleasure and stimulation. So in this practice of mindfulness meditation, we counter that grasping by letting go and coming back to the breath again. It's natural that the mind wanders when we try to pay attention to the breath. So our practice is to let go and come back moment by moment.
at first it might be difficult to even stay with a few breaths in a row because of the tendencies of thoughts to intrude. And so it takes patience and a certain kindness towards ourselves to let the thoughts come and let them go. You'll see how at times the thoughts become very compelling. This is really just the mind trying to get you caught back up in the drama. Something in our minds that is restless, looking for something, some fix, some entertainment. And at first, just being with the breath isn't enough. Gradually with time, we find that we're able to spend more time with the breath, be less easily swept away, be less compelled by our thoughts. This takes patience, the willingness to sit, to sit through whatever arises. Keep coming back to the breath. Keep connecting with the sensations of just being in a body, very simple. Nowhere to go, nothing to accomplish. Just practicing being.
with mindfulness, we notice the wandering mind. We also keep track of energy. Sometimes we get so relaxed, we get drowsy. At other times, we get restless. The opposite happens. Energy gets a little out of balance, too much energy. So part of our practice is to try to hold whatever imbalances there are, hold it. Gently hold them gently, not fight with those experiences, but maybe try to arouse energy when drowsy, calm the energy, restless.
right. Ah, just about drifted off in La La Land there for a while. Uh, Friday night, you know, for a long week of, I don't know, what did I do this week? Anyway, um, tend to fall asleep at this time. So, um, so let's take five. We'll take five minute break. Uh, I, I'm going to get up and stretch and, um, come back and I'll, I'll give my talk. All right. Hello, hello. <laughs> nice to see some faces. I know sometimes uh, it's more comfortable to remain um, unseen. Um, yeah, I, I hope people will uh, come around at least to, uh, for some of the day on Sunday. Uh, to they keep coming back day long, and also, if you're interested in in more intensive meditation experience, the residential retreat March 16th to the 20th is a good way to to get a taste of that in a in a recovery uh, sort of themed retreat. So, um, I just noticed today that the calendar isn't working on my website, so I'm not sure why. I wrote to the person who handles my website, but because um, I, I have a bunch of things coming up now, um, and uh, I'm uh, so so. If you're interested in you know <laughs> hanging out, um, come back and check that. So uh, yeah, uh, tonight I want to talk about a mindfulness of feelings. It's sort of a topic that I've been working with a lot lately, um, particularly around, you know, I've mentioned this to some of my groups. I've been writing about the Sutta on Mindfulness of Breathing called the Anapanasati Sutta. And it has, uh, it's, it's, very, you know, very much a mindfulness practice and it, and it, uh, has a section that's on feeling. And and I want to talk about um, both kind of our emotions from Western psychology and and their role in addiction and recovery, and then the the, the Buddhist take on that, and kind of get to something um, about working with all that. Um, and you know, and first of all, just to say it, it's, I think it's pretty obvious that um, I, a, uh, uh, that for addicts, one of the triggers and the underlying our self-destructive behavior was emotions that we that that are like not manageable for us or that we don't even recognize. Um, and, you know, that's very often a trigger for drinking and using and, and all kinds of addictive behavior. I mean, I mean, that's almost sort of like, <laughs> uh, so obvious, uh, doesn't bear repeating, but I think it's an important 
place to kind of start and and to see that uh, you know our that each of us has like emotional patterns uh sort of reactive patterns ways that we respond to the world and you know a lot of these things uh, get pretty established probably in adolescence i know for me that was you know true that you know i started to struggle with depression that was kind of very kind of a theme in my life and 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 that one of the things that's very problematic is that we build a story about around our feelings and and rather than like learning about the feelings themselves we build a story about identity and and we start to define ourselves by certain emotional patterns oh i'm this kind of person and that becomes can become very solidified and uh, and then self-fulfilling because for instance it's depressing to think about being depressed <laughs> and thinking about anxiety triggers anxious feelings you know and resentments build on resentments so all of this we see that it the, the memory and conditioning and these habits all kind of build up into these patterns that become you know that start to define us and this is one of the ways that we get trapped in our addiction right because our our drinking and using is also part of what we how we define ourselves that's just who i am and there's very little room in there for choices to make choices or to change you know and, and of course the idea of addiction is something that can't be changed it's just it's got an inevitability to it that keeps repeating itself and of course each time it repeats it becomes even more deeply embedded into those habit patterns so you know this is kind of a starting point for for our work of recovery because a lot of people find that when they eliminate they think oh my problem is drugs and alcohol or food or sex or gambling or whatever that addiction is you know people and the way i relate to people and and then they particularly with things that they can become abstinent about oh i don't drink or use anymore all of a sudden they find out well i still have problems and now the problems might be the things that i was suppressing by being loaded and now it becomes evident to some degree why we were acting in that way and then the the real challenge starts to rise and i think this is one of the big reasons why many people don't make it through a year of recovery that that people relapse so easily early on because all of a sudden you're la- you're you're laid bare emotionally you're, you know, and and you don't have tools for dealing with that and this is why i think it's really important 
for people early in recovery to just stay really close to a program, to go to a lot of meetings, to get a sponsor, to get new friends and, and to be held, to be held in the care and kindness and love and compassion of, of the arms of other re- recovering people, people who have a little bit more time and emotional stability and maturity. Because we have to get to a point where we can start to allow ourselves to feel you know, and, and for that to be safe. So, you know, part of my story is also that I started doing Buddhist practice before I got sober. And, and so I was kind of trying to deal with the feeling world and realm beforehand. And I remember early in my practice asking one teacher what emotions are. You know, because I, I guess I was starting to kind of deconstruct my experience and something of the way I was describing meditation tonight in the guided meditation, where we start to really look at the elements of experience, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the perceptions. And you know, my first teacher said, oh, it's emotions are a combination of a physical and a mental experience. And then I went to another teacher <laughs> and and shared that. And that teacher said, well, that's not quite right. <laughs> Unfortunately, this was like right before that teacher was about to give a Dharma talk. <laughs> and I never got to say, well, what, well, what is that? What? Wait. <laughs> but that was the beginning for me of an exploration that I, that I still am doing. I've brought this up with other teachers. I brought this up with Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great um, translator, a Buddhist scholar. And, and particularly one of the questions I've asked as I started to read Buddhist suttas are, where does the Buddha talk about emotions like he talks about greed hatred and delusion so there's hatred and he talks about grief but he talks about grief mainly in the context of someone some beloved person dying you know he might talk about an enemy hatred with an enemy and he'll talk about loving kindness but not a sort of so not so much about personal love, but more unconditional love for all beings, you know. So, you know, it's it seems that the things that I called emotions or call emotions are not something the Buddha necessarily talked about a lot. And and so what the Buddha talks about and that what we translate as feelings is something different. And this is something called Vedana, which I'm going to put in the chat. 
Um, well, I guess I have to make sure I'm sending it to everybody, not to just Ileana. And so Vedna is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience that's what's called like the feeling tone of every sense experience, including the mental sense. So this is like a very, this is a very simple idea, but it's not one we have in the English language. <laughs> I'm going to try to get us somewhere through this. So, so try to bear with me a little bit. This takes a little time to get to. So the principle of Vedna is that when you hear a sound, you have this conditioned instantaneous reaction. Before you even know what the sound is or have defined it, you find it either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When you see a sight, before you've had time to identify what the thing is necessarily, it impresses you as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. A taste, a smell, a bodily sensation, each of them has this raw, just immediate experience before it develops into a full knowing, like a perception and like, oh, that was a bell. Oh, Kevin must have rung the bell. Oh, that means the meditation is over, right? So before all of that, there's just the ear receiving the sound and it it strikes your ear as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, so just neutral. So as I say, that's that's not really even a concept we have in English. And and it's only because of the Buddha's profound clarity of mind that we know about it <laughs> because uh, no one's, I don't know if no one, but I, I don't know that any Western spiritual teachers or philosophers or anyone has ever sort of pointed out that there are these different aspects of the mental experience starting with this. So Vedna is a part of an emotion. It's the thing that immediately defines the kind of, I don't know if the word valence is right, but kind of the tonality, the affective tone of an emotion. But what happens is that we have an emotion And before we know what it is, just as with the other sense experiences, it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if it's, and whatever it is, then as it becomes into consciousness, it, the fullness of its complexity takes form. Because the, uh, an emotion is tied up with past experiences, with the ideas about who we are, 
about with ideas about what we should be feeling, what we shouldn't be feeling, about uh, the ideas of what's tolerable and what isn't tolerable. And as my first teacher said, there's a physical element to it and there's a mental element to it. And we'll see as I go on with this talk (laughs) that Vedana is the connecting element between the body and mind. And it, so that when there's a sensation, there's the Vedanic experience, you know, experience of it. And then there's the mental experience. And so, so I feel something. It's pleasant. Then I, then I identify it. Oh, that was a nice foot massage. I should get more foot massages. You know, those are really nice. You're really good at giving foot massages. The story, right? The mental part of it. Oh, and, you know, reflexology, that's really healthy, you know, and the story goes out, right? Now, this happens, this process, the physical, then the Vedana, and the mental, also goes in the other direction. So you have a thought, or let's say an encounter with someone, someone says something to you, and there's a feeling that goes with it. And then there's a physical response to it. So the Vedna kind of sits in between those two. And it's when we put all three of these elements together, the body, the Vedna, the mind, that we have this complete experience that we call an emotion. And because of our inattention, that is, our inability to see these different elements as just to see that the experience is a construction. We take it as a thing and we give it reality. And when we are able to be more mindful and see that it's just made up of these things, then we are less likely to proliferate with it, to build on it, to build a story out of it. We just are able to go, oh, that's unpleasant. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no wonder, you know, that person just yelled at me for, you know, uh, walking into the crosswalk and they didn't, you know, their car was coming along. They didn't want to stop and they, they beeped or whatever. And I'm, you know, oh, well, now, okay, well, that's just, that's a feeling, and it's just came because of that. I don't have to make up a story about what a jerk that person is, and I should take down their license plate number and, you know, uh, look them up on the DMV and, you know, go to their house and egg their house. You know, I can just, oh, there's a feeling. That was unpleasant. That There's the cause. There's the feeling. Here's the physical experience. Let it go. Right. So, I want to place Vedna a little bit more and and I'm going to come back to working with it, but I want to place it a little bit in the, in the teachings, in the Buddhist teachings. 
because you'll see that it has this important role. So the first place that uh, people usually encounter a teaching on Vedna is in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the most famous sutta and probably the most important sutta in the Pali canon. So the four foundations of mindfulness are body, vedna, feeling, mind, and what's called dharmas or insights. And these are the four areas of experience that the Buddha says we should apply mindfulness to. So it's not surprising that one of them is body and one of them is mind. But it's, to me, somewhat surprising or at least was, <laughs> uh, that this Vedna thing that was just as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral got equal importance. So we're going to look at why that is in a moment. But but before we do, I want to talk about another kind of list in Buddhism, which has an important role as well. And this is called the five aggregates. Very similar here. But this, these are the five things <laughs> that when we experience them, they create the sense that there is a self. They create the illusion that there's a self. There's, again, the body and the feelings. And then there's perception, which is our naming quality, the labeling quality. And then there's mental formations that come out of that and consciousness. So again, Vedana has this kind of critical role. It's part of how we define ourselves. Oh, I am this person who feels like this, who believes this, who who looks like this, who senses the world, experiences the world like this. This is who I am. Because when when all these things are, I mean, all these things are are, are operating at the same time, the the feeling, the body, the sensations, the the Vedana, the thoughts, the perceptions, the naming, our consciousness, and it creates this package. And again, if there isn't mindfulness, it's just viewed as a solid thing, and that's. That's how we, why we kind of walk around in the world feeling like, well, yeah, I'm me. I mean, I remember these certain things. There's certain things that I like, certain things I don't like. This is the team that I root for. You know, the, this is the country I'm from. And, and it's this, just this story. But when we deconstruct it, we see that there's nothing really there. There's no center to it. There's no core. So finally, the place that we see the, the vital importance of Vedna is in one more list. <laughs> you don't have to know these lists, but it, just to get the idea that there are these kind of ways of looking at our experience in our mind. And this is the list of dependent origination that essentially shows the process by which we, we create suffering. And so we see that in the Four Noble Truths, but dependent origination is like a, an elaboration of the Four Noble Truths. And it starts with what's called ignorance, but essentially means not seeing and not understanding reality. So again, it's, it's this, 
we're not seeing the elements of the package. We're just seeing this singular package. And, and dependent origination helps us to, to break down how it happens that we fall into this, this way of being that always leads to an unsatisfactory result, how suffering arises. And it's a, it's a process that happens so rapidly. Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai forest master, said that it's really not possible to see these 12 elements of dependent origination as they unfold in real time. He, he compared it to like falling out of a tree and counting the branches as you fall to the ground. And it's just like, it just happens too fast. But there is a critical moment in the process that we can catch and that can be the critical turning point for not following the whole momentum that leads to suffering. And that it's right around the middle of, I don't know, number wise, you know, I don't have the list as a, I don't have the 12 steps of dependent origination memorized as a list, but there's a point where the, we have a body and then there are senses and then our senses make contact with a sense object. This is like the, you know, the, the technical language of Buddhism. My eyes are the sense. And then the screen here is the sense object. And in that moment, just as I described, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral tone to that experience of feeling. Pleasant experiences, pleasant Vedna tends to trigger craving, wanting more. I like it. I want another one. Unpleasant Vedana tends to trigger aversion. I've got to get rid of it. Neutral Vedana, generally, we just are not aware of it. But if we sit with, if we're experiencing neutral Vedana for any extended period of time, we'll very quickly try to seek out something pleasant to distract us. So, if you know your Buddhism 101, you know what we're what I'm getting at here, which is that the craving or the aversion or the dullness or the grasping after something more entertaining are the things that cause suffering. And if we can simply stop this process, which we can actually do if we're very attentive, at the level of of that first perception, that first encounter with the object, it's pleasant. And just see that we don't have to fall into the cycle of craving, which leads to suffering. So this is why the title of this talk is Mindfulness of Feelings. And why that is so important. Because it's feelings. It's just the, the this 
pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience that sends us down the rabbit hole, that sets us off, that that leads us to that drink, that sends us into a rage, that gets us numbed out on, you know, binging on Netflix, that sends us to the refrigerator. And, and all, everything starts right there. All, all those problems start right there. And yes, very often that feeling tone leads into not just an action, but it balloons into an emotion that can consume us, you know, that can push us off into depression, into panic attack, into, you know, stress, into into rage. So it's not just about, oh, it's it, it, I can interrupt my behavior, but it's also about interrupting the proliferation of emotional states, the, the expansion of emotional states, is trying to stay on this very simple level. And so most of the time, I will say, in in ordinary daily life, in ordinary mental states, our clarity of attention is not strong enough or deep enough to catch the Vedna in real time. Usually we can actually only identify Vedna in retrospect. Like you realize, oh, I'm getting really pissed off. Oh, wait. Oh, that was unpleasant Vedna. Or man, that smells good. I, I, I'm i just going to buy a dozen of those donuts. Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, no, that that's really pleasant, Vedna. And then we can kind of pull ourselves back. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about my own way of dealing with this. You know, maybe you'll be more successful than me. But But just to be able to realize that this is the process, that insight and that understanding, if you carry that with you, through your day, you can interrupt a lot of sort of negative mental patterns, behavioral patterns. You know, when when I have now, I'll I'll, t- I'll take you through my process around uh, the depressive process, which you know, as I mentioned, has like been a very a strong theme for me, and and this this practice has been key to it, which is that when I typically, I will notice uh, just an ugh feeling, yuck, crap, you know, and there might be some thought that set it off. And usually there is, or something that's like going on, you know, it might not be like I'm thinking about it this minute, but maybe it was like this morning and that, that I was, you know, that came up. In any case, suddenly I realize, ugh, I don't, oh, and the, and the thought very quickly will come, oh, I'm getting depressed. <laughs> and, and the sooner I catch this, of course, the better. But 
what I do, what I try to do, I won't say I'm 100% successful with this, but what I try to do at that moment is stop and breathe, literally, like feel my breath, and then turn toward the feeling. And and this is so important. And this goes right back to the beginning of this talk about addiction, how addiction happens. We are running from our feelings in addiction. And in order to live a comfortable, recovered life, we can't run from them. You know, we have to come into relationship with them, make friends with them, if you will. And so I turn toward the feeling instead of, instead of, because my tendency is not only not to turn toward the feeling, but it is to use the feeling as a jumping off point for a story, for fear to arise, for, you know, uh, dread to arise that, oh, no, uh, this means this. And, and oh, this is terrible. It's like Christmas is coming and I'm getting depressed, you know. So, oh, or, oh, yeah, of course, no wonder I'm getting depressed. It's Christmas, you know. And I'm, like, it just, it, the stories just start to proliferate. And to just stop and go, oh, what does this feel like? Oh, well, it has a lot of qualities to it. And and one of the things that's hard to... Uh, to get the reason one of the reasons it's hard to get to the vedna is that like an emotion like that has a lot is a lot more than just unpleasant it's got all this coloring to it right it's got it, it you know it's it's got its own sort of tone and nuance to it but the buddha is telling me Don't worry so much about all that, you know, all the bells and whistles of your emotion or what, all the nuance of it and and all the textures of it. That's all fine. You can observe that. But, but remember that what's really important is that it's unpleasant. And your reaction to that unpleasantness is the important thing. And if you can turn to it, and hold the unpleasantness without running, without telling a story, without indulging in it, then it will pass because everything must pass. And the only thing that keeps alive is my resistance to it, is my story about it, is all that I'm doing with it and milking it. And when I don't feed it or milk it in that way, it just has a kind of half-life. And we discover that when we turn to and feel an emotion without even naming the emotion, with, and we're just turning to the unpleasant or pleasant feeling of it or neutral feeling of it that it it loses its power and it doesn't have there's nothing holding it up you know the buddha describes vedna as being like a bubble (laughs) it's like so ephemeral and this is what we call emptiness, right? It's empty because it, it doesn't have any substance to it. 
it's just, it comes and goes. And the only thing that sustains it is our belief in it, our story about it. If we don't feed it, it can't really stay alive. So a couple things then about this process. It takes trust. It takes trust in ourselves and our own capacity to be with the feeling, to be with pain. You know? And this, I would argue, is you know, a critical skill or power that we have to develop in recovery because life includes pain. And as addicts, we were trying to kind of create this pain-free existence, try to get through life, avoiding all bumps, you know, no, no, uh, thinking of those, you know, no speed bumps (laughs) allowed in our life. We just want a smooth, freshly paved highway from here to eternity, you know, and that's not reality. And the only way you can get close to that is to be intoxicated. And of course, we know that you can't sustain that. So yeah, you can create it for a few hours, but it's unsustainable. And so recovery means that we have to learn to be with discomfort. And when we do, that's actually freedom. You know, that's you know, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, to be undisturbed. You know, the famous words of the Sinsin Ming, the third Zen patriarch, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. It's exactly what the practice of Vedna is about. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. We, If we are not grasping or pushing away, trying to fix or control things. It's like just our problems kind of fall away. But yeah, it's scary to feel, especially at first. And it's not pleasant to feel pain. And it's not easy to just enjoy something without trying to make more of it. And it's not easy to just sit with boredom and not try to entertain ourselves. But when you let go in those moments, there's very, pretty quickly, uh, you know, very often, um, you know, a kind of peace that comes. And it's actually the path to equanimity is through this process. So equanimity is the quality of a balanced mind that is undisturbed by the pleasant, the unpleasant, or the neutral. And it's said to be the highest state, according to the Buddha. It's one of the Brahma Viharas. It's part of the factors of enlightenment. It's, you know, when you think of the the ideal of a Buddhist monk, 
what you're what you're probably imagining is somebody who is equanimous, who is able to just live live a simple life without needing to add anything, without having to get in any conflict. And it's the the thing that allows us to be equanimous is when we can not be not grasp after that which is pleasant not push away that which is unpleasant and not try to change or improve on that which is neutral so this I think is one of the most important practices we can develop with mindfulness no I mean, we, you know, we typically have the practice of noticing thoughts and letting go of thoughts. And that's helpful. But thoughts are going to keep showing up. You're not going to get rid of them. It's not like you're going to get to a place where, okay. And we can, we can, you know, take a kind of inventory with our thoughts. But underneath our thoughts, there's always these feelings. And, and, you know, if we come to meditation thinking we're going to transcend all our feelings or get rid of them, suppress them, you know, we're sort of taking the wrong route uh, to this work. It's it's uh, it's a different process. It's really a process of turning toward and and opening to the wholeness, the the fullness of our experience, and and bringing a kind of a willingness to explore and a certain fearlessness to it. But I, and I do think though, that the, the recollection of impermanence really helps in that fearlessness, because when we know it's going to pass, there isn't the same kind of problem presented by a feeling that we know is just going to pass like a like a bubble, just going to pop. So I hope this is uh, a helpful reflection and something you can uh, adapt and, and adopt into your own meditation practice. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.